Brexit is top of mind today. It was to be a weekend of celebration for those who want to see Britain leave the European Union. Instead, British elected officials are scrambling to come up with a plan to keep Brexit on track. The EU has given them an extension to their deadline. They have until April 12th. I've got Alan Wager on the line. He's a research associate at the UK in a Changing Europe, which is an academic think tank based at King's College London. Mr. Wager, thank you very much for taking time today. Hi, Julie. You recently co-authored a report looking at how the Brexit efforts have played out over these last two years. Why has it been so difficult for Parliament and Prime Minister Theresa May to agree on how to leave the EU? Well, I guess there's two things. The first thing is leaving the European Union and doing Brexit is is really, really difficult. It's a really complicated relationship with the UK and the EU that's lasted for over over 40 years. So kind of extracting the UK from it, it's a legal, political, social sort of order, if you like, that's really complicated. So doing that was always going to be difficult. Theresa May was elected as prime minister and started on the process of doing that. And then just as she triggered Article 50, she called a general election and she lost her majority in the House of Commons. Mm, let's let's pause and for just a moment. When you say trigger Article 50, so in 2016, the people voted for Brexit. And then in March of 2017, she formally started the clock running with the, the European Union and said, OK, we hereby declare we're going to do this. And that gave them two years to figure it out. Yeah, sure. Right. So, so they took about a, a year to come up with a, 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 a plan. And then they did started the formal legal process of leaving the European Union. I guess the problem was that at that point, they actually hadn't done that much thought, hadn't put that much thought into what Brexit would ultimately look like, but they were getting a lot of pressure already. It had already been almost a year since the election, since the referendum had happened. And people that voted for Brexit were already starting to say, why is this not starting to happen? Why are we not in the process of doing this already? So it had been a year, there was a lot of pressure to trigger Article 50, start this legal process of leaving, so March 2017, Prime Minister May started doing that. And that, and that you say, was, was one step that led us to where we are today, which is that there wasn't actually a plan in place. Like, that's the other way they could have gone, was figured out, how are we going to do this? Okay, now let's trigger this. Otherwise, they started the clock without really knowing what their play was. Yeah, yeah. So, so the main drivers behind doing it then were, was the political pressure coming from the Conservative Party to start the process. And the idea was... Yeah, get the process moving and then sort of figure out figure out the details later, if you like, as opposed to squaring Parliament and squaring the House of Commons with the objectives that they had in place, like the European Union did, for example. The European Union got a mandate for the specific objectives they were after from the European Parliament and from the heads of state of all the other countries and then came to the negotiating table with these clear objectives. The UK process was, I mean, completely different, essentially. They... They came to the, they went to the negotiating table, then decided to have an election, and then lost the election, mm. and then they were, then they sort of had no hand left, and they, they didn't really know what they were, what they were, what they were doing, and where they were going, and what they were trying to achieve, and that was part of the strategic problem that the UK has had the whole time. All right, so so this election, it sounds like another, um, maybe it was the fatal misstep here in the process, because um, in March of 2017, two years ago, is it fair to say that Prime Minister May and the Conservative Party actually had the votes they needed to pass what they've been unable to pass over this last year? It would have still been difficult, but 
it just got a lot more difficult when Theresa May lost the majority. The level of majority was, was historically quite quite low, but it, looking at it now, would they have been able to get through their current deal with that House of Commons? They'd have had a lot better chance than they do now without any majority at all. Mm. You, you could look back historically and say it was always inevitable, given, the, given there was a hung parliament, no party had a majority of seats, but Theresa May's party had the most seats, that it was always going to be this sort of difficulties right at the end of the process when the deal had to be passed. But Theresa May sort of baffled on as if she had a majority. Immediately after the election, she could have, you know, uh, started negotiations with the Labour Party, with the opposition and with Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, and said, what can you support and we can support and try and do it on a sort of cross-party basis. But there was never that conversation. Oh, okay. So Prime Minister May, you're, you're laying this specifically at, at, at her feet in terms of the strategy to to sort of pretend that they hadn't lost the 2017 election yeah. when it came to Brexit and just sort of barrel forward as though um, the plan that, that she was putting together was for the old the old parliament, not the new one. Yeah, and I mean, I think a different sort of politician and maybe a different type of, a different sort of person that, that Theresa May might have gone gone about it that way. But I guess you've got to remember that after you've just lost seats in an election, you're hardly in the best position to start going going and reaching out across across parties and talking to your opposition parties because within the Conservative Party she was, you know, pretty weak and she 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 was struggling to hold on to the to the premiership to the premiership of the Conservative Party at all. So actually it was uh she could have gone that down that route. It would have been difficult because she was she was she was very weak, hmm. but I mean, but I mean, uh, maybe a different leader at that point might have been able to do something like that. And an important distinction here, uh, Professor Wager, I think for Americans is that we don't um, the, the the president doesn't have the ability in the United States to call an election. They happen on at a specific time every couple of years. Yeah. But uh, but in the parliament, that is what the Conservative Party and Prime Minister May they can call an election, and so so they brought this pain upon themselves effectively. Yeah, and there was sort of a degree of hubris. I mean, the opinion polls at the time put Theresa May at his, an historic. Uh, level of victory. She'd have won something like 180 seats at the polls, polls at the start of the general election, and by the end, she had lost seats. So right at the start of that campaign, everyone thought that the Conservative majority would have been overwhelming. Yeah, so, so I think there was this assumption that given, given, given the Brexit had happened, and given Theresa May was, at that time, a pretty popular Prime Minister before the campaign began, Mm. that she was going to run away with it. So I think you can lay the charge at her that she was doing this sort of, if you like, in a way, for political, party political advantage. And that wasted a lot of time because Article 50 had begun. So part of the two-year process was spent doing this election. And what was the outcome? It was lost seats, a lost majority, lost ability to work on a cross-party basis, and ultimately the deadlock that we have now. Is it too late to... Um, to do the negotiating that the Conservative Party and Prime Minister May failed to do a year and a half ago? Yeah, I mean, we're trying, but there's, but we're, but there's 12 days to go until we're meant to be leaving the European Union now. So we've had two and a half years, and now we're going to try and do that whole process of trying to find the sort of compromise arrangement in 12 days. So, I mean, I, I, guess, I, guess, the de- I guess deadlines sort of focus minds, but the amount of time it takes will be difficult. What you, what you could say is that what, what the parliamentarians are trying to achieve is something that can be negotiated in 12 days, probably, because what they're looking for is what sort of Brexit does Britain want in the future? They're not looking at this sort of a lot of the legal 
stuff about what happens to citizens in the UK or how much money the UK owes. What 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 a lot of uh, MPs want to change is there's an aspirational document in this divorce deal that says what type of what type of deal will the UK have in the future? Does it want to be really close to the European Union? Or does it want a much more distant relationship? And that's what they're trying to work out now. Is there any reason why they need to have only up until April 12th? I mean, would would Parliament and the EU be open to another year or two to really work this out? I think the European Union are becoming increasingly sort of exasperated by these situations. So it's the European Union that are particularly keen that it's resolved. There's European parliamentary elections on the 22nd of May. And to get all the sort of legal work done to make those happen in the UK. That's why they set this deadline of April the 12th. And these European deadline, European elections are really important for people in, in the EU and in the European Union. They're the key democratic element of the European Union. So the question is, is Britain going to be in those elections or not? If it's going to be in those elections, then it needs to have a long, extensive Brexit. It needs to have a think again, and it basically won't be doing Brexit for a year or two. If it is doing Brexit this year, then it can't partake in those elections. So that's the sort of choice that the European Parliament and the European Union are putting on the British government. Does the does the European Union, the European Commission, have any any reason to not just want to kick Britain out at this point? Say, you know what, you guys couldn't get your act together. We're tired of this. This is too distracting. We need certainty. So see you later. I mean, there are geostrategic things you could you could argue that, for example, Emmanuel Macron, the French president. He's been quite hard on no deal now, but also he has argued before that having Britain renege on its decision to to leave in the referendum and to rejoin the European Union would be a massive strategic and political sort of achievement for the European Union. It would say to all those countries that are, or or people within countries in the European Union that are thinking of of leaving the European Union, look how hard it is. Britain decided to, to, to leave, but then ultimately reversed its decision and said, let's change our mind because it's so difficult and because it's such a bad idea. So actually, if you think about it in terms of the incentives for the European Union, it's about saying the project, the European projects that, you know, these countries have spent the last 50 or 60 years building is so valuable that even if, even if a country tries to leave, it can't. So that would be the sort of argument that some in the European Union would make. And also there's the fact that, the, that Britain is, you know, uh, the world's sixth largest economy and it's it, the European Union without Britain can't speak for the whole of Europe. I mean, it can't. It, it can only speak now for for a large part of Europe. And I think that's something that's it changes. It changes what the European Union is if Britain isn't a part of it. What do the people of Britain think at this point about Brexit? Has public opinion shifted since they voted in support of it three years ago? So public opinion. Most people, whether you voted leave, whether you voted remain, you still believe in either leave or remain, and probably even you believe in it a bit more. Your identity as a leave, somebody voted to leave the European Union or somebody voted to remain in the European Union is more important to you than whichever party you vote for normally. So these, these ideas of leave and remain have become real big, really important sort of political identities in the UK. That said, there have been people that have changed their mind and they are more likely to be people that voted leave. So now we, we do see a small majority in the opinion polls consistently. There's been no opinion poll in the last sort of 12 to 18 months that showed leave ahead. Hmm. So there is a, this majority for, leave, for, for remaining in the European Union now that there wasn't before. But people are not that keen necessarily to have another referendum. So 
although there's this, there's this new majority for Remain, three quarters or four fifths of young people that join the electoral register when they're over 18 support Remain. So we're having an increasingly Remain electorate. People are moving towards Remain. But when you ask people, do you want to have another referendum? People really aren't that sure because mm. I think people know that it was incredibly divisive, incredibly political, difficult, politically difficult, and people aren't necessarily keen to live through it again. Alan Wager is a research associate at the UK in a changing Europe, which is an academic think tank based at King's College London. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose.